Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack. That's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one-time PayPal donation to truthjihad at gmail.com. The key thing is, don't be inhaling, don't be ingesting. Stay inside, don't drink, or eat anything. These are important questions. I understand that. Highest moment the last eight years. Hmm. Highest moment the last eight years. Well, I think the the most important, the most compelling was uh, was 9-11 itself. Welcome to Truth Jihad Radio, the live radio show every Friday evening here on Revolution.Radio, where we talk about all of the forbidden topics with all of the banned and censored and generally airbrushed out of history people. In the second hour of tonight's show, Jim Cavanaugh comes on to talk about RFK Jr.'s chances and the chances of nuclear war. He put the chances of nuclear war at 50-50 last year, so we'll find out if he's raised those or lowered them. Unfortunately, that's probably a bit higher than RFK Jr.'s chances, although, who knows, crazier things have happened. In the first hour, one of the great airbrushed out-of-history figures of all time, and certainly one of the leading lights, if not the leading light, of the alternative media, Ron Unz, joins us to discuss the Supreme Court decision today with Students for Fair Admission taking on Harvard and North Carolina and perhaps putting an end to affirmative action. And that whole process, many believe, was set off by Ron's viral article, The Myth of American Meritocracy, which appeared in American Conservative back in 2012, and set off this chain reaction. But somewhere along the way, Ron started talking about all kinds of forbidden topics, and now the media doesn't really want to give him credit, or should we say blame, for the Supreme Court decision. They're not even mentioning him. He's had a a couple of marginal mentions, and that is all. Why would that be? Why wouldn't the pro-affirmative action people want to beat up on him and call him a crazy anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist and try to smear the anti-affirmative action movement by association? Well, Ron says it's the Voldemort effect. They don't want to mention him because that would send people to his website and they might look at his ideas and they might discover that some of those ideas are quite compelling. Well, I think he's probably right about that and quite a few other things. So let's uh, let's talk about this uh, Supreme Court decision that Ron could take some credit for even though the mainstream media certainly isn't giving him any. So, hey, welcome, Ron. How are you? Fine, fine. Great to be here. Yeah, yeah. Good to have you back on the show. And I, I've been kind of counting down the Supreme Court decision. You're waiting for it to happen so I could get you on the show. And it, it happened on a Thursday, and the show was on the Friday, so it was fortuitously timed. Um, so your piece today suggested that you were pleasantly surprised that this appears to be a pretty broadside attack on so-called affirmative action. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Did it exceed your expectations? Well, it seems that way. Obviously, it's very difficult to know how this will play out in you know the process of the impact it'll have on university admissions or other forms of affirmative action. But most of the analyses I've been reading really seem to think that the decision was much more sweeping and broader and stronger 
than many had anticipated. In fact, the headline, the banner headlines in both the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal describe this decision as gutting affirmative action. And considering, especially the New York Times obviously would not be happy with that approach, for them to have put that sort of headline on paper really indicates that it does seem a very strong decision. Right. It, it seems they had a couple of caveats. The military academies may still be able to use affirmative action. And there was a little bit of, uh, of ambiguity, I think, in discussing the way that people could write admissions essays referencing their ethnicity, and that could still be considered. So the universities may still think they can sort of game the process. But it did seem that the media reaction was kind of concerned and and they sounded as if they really thought it was going to be harder to do that. They they were expecting a more wishy-washy decision that would leave more loopholes. Well, it certainly seems that way. I mean, you know, again, uh, if we're talking about the, in effect, the loophole being admissions essays, I mean, that's very, very different than the sort of massive process of affirmative action we have right now, where in effect, people check a box on their form. And that checkbox really, you know, has a huge impact on whether or not they're admitted. So I I really, you know, in a sense, there certainly would be avenues for cheating at the edges. But if this ruling really is enforced, I I think, you know, that sort of thing, there would be a tremendous reduction in the impact of ethnicity on admissions decisions. And also it could have much broader implications for affirmative action in lots of other areas as well. In other words, uh, the whole thing is for the last 50 years, racially based affirmative action has essentially been the law of the land, supported by numerous Supreme Court decisions. And that's why, you know, as of over a year ago, I really was quite skeptical that anything would happen with the Supreme Court decision. And, you know, with a six to three decision going this way, it really, you know, might suddenly start turning the tide on a lot of these ethnically based programs that we've had now for two generations. So you think it'll go beyond the universities into other areas? Uh, The Equal Protection Clause, of course, is the basis of this. So what are some of the other areas that might be affected? Well, obviously, employment decisions. In other words, to the extent that, for example, we're saying it's impermissible for people to be admitted to university programs or get benefits in that way based on their ethnicity. I mean, that has very broad implications for many other aspects of our society. And, you know, again, it it all depends on how this would or would not be, you know, carried out and whether, for example, there would be legal challenges that would be made by individuals in some of these other areas. But, you know, given, for example, the tide that's been running very strongly in one direction for decades and especially for the last few years, it's really quite a strong reversal to see this sort of broad six to three decision going in the other way. And, uh, you know, it could really have a lot of impact on society, especially because it, it really challenges the legitimacy of these racially based programs in a way that really the Supreme Court has not previously done. Indeed. And it seems that the Supreme Court has the public behind it on this issue. It's uh, unlike the abortion issue where similarly we we have a certain group on the left that's very, very upset about both of these decisions. But 
with the abortion issue, it seemed that they had more support in the middle of the political spectrum, and they've been able to leverage that for electoral gains. At least that was one interpretation of the latest election results. In this case, it seems the polls show pretty clearly that most people, a strong majority of Americans, actually are against affirmative action or reverse discrimination. And so that might make it easier for this to have that kind of sweeping effect that you're suggesting. Absolutely. The numbers are overwhelming. I think generally in the 70 to 80 percent range, depending on how you ask the question. Not only that, but for example, in California a few years ago, there was an attempt by the Democratic Party, which totally dominates the state, to repeal Prop 209, which was one of the earliest ballot initiatives banning affirmative action. And even though the state's electorate these days is much, much less heavily white than it was back then, in fact, uh, the electorate is really roughly half non-white, there was actually a stronger opposition to reestablishing affirmative action than there had been 25 years ago. And, and that generated a lot of really surprise in that the entire political elite of the state, the overwhelmingly dominant Democratic Party, near unanimously supported restoring affirmative action in college admissions in the state of California. And it was opposed. It was turned down by a large majority of both Asians and Hispanics, which are the two large non-white groups in the state, along with an overwhelming majority of whites. So, you know, that, that really surprised a lot of people. And in fact, I think the campaign to restore affirmative action outspent its opponents by something like 10 or 20 to 1 where advertising is a very dominant factor in a large state like California, but it didn't matter. People still voted the other way. And that, I think, opened a lot of eyes on the fact that affirmative action is much less popular among various groups in our society than, you know, sometimes the political elites might think it is. Well, some of the political elites would seem to think that this is going to create havoc in American race relations by undoing the decades or centuries or what have you of, of progress and turning the clock back to the time of white supremacy. And, of course, there's this new hysteria about the white supremacists and the neo-Nazis and so on. So that's the you know one hysterical interpretation. Another interpretation might be that actually it, might calm things down a little bit. There are all of these ethnic and racial tensions in the society. Trump's election uh, was partly a cause and an effect of those things. People are concerned about immigration, uh, the black crime, uh, and, and then, of course, white supremacism and extremism and all of that sort of thing. So what do you think will be the result of this? Will it exacerbate things or will it calm things? Well, I think, I mean, to the extent that the decision is actually implemented and actually has an impact on people applying to colleges and being admitted, I think the effect would be much more beneficial than harmful. And I mean, some of the things really that have been going on have been so absurd in that many times, for example, you have individuals who come from very wealthy elite families, often black families, being admitted to universities over better qualified applicants who come from impoverished backgrounds. And, I mean, there's really no logical basis for it, regardless of any ideological perspective somebody might have. So, you know, I, I think a lot of those absurdities will become much more difficult to implement when we're talking about, you know, 
essays rather than checking a box on an application form. And also, there have been a lot of anecdotal claims that, you know, many times people from an overwhelmingly white background have been sometimes pretending to be of minority background, pretending to be Hispanic, even sometimes pretending to be black, because they correctly perceive that as being their best chance to be admitted to an elite university, which really, I mean, has no justification that anybody could possibly see. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that would be a form of cheating. And you opened your article, The Myth of American Meritocracy, by mentioning that Harvard cheating scandal from back in 2012. And interestingly, just five or six days ago, there was a New York Times headline, Harvard scholar who studies honesty is accused of fabricating findings. And <laughs> that story uh, discussed a, uh, a scholar who was doing so-called um, I don't know if they call it honesty studies, but studying whether you could nudge people in the Cass Sunstein sense into being more honest by having them sign a pledge to be honest and putting that pledge at the top of the list of things they were going to possibly cheat on or whether you had it at the bottom of when they signed it. It sounds like a joke, but this guy apparently created all sorts of, or maybe it was a woman actually, who created uh, false results uh, to support that bizarre <laughs> kind of thing. Um, so what do you think the effect of this could be on the larger issue of, of corruption and the kind of degradation of standards of honesty and integrity that we've seen starting at the top of our society and then sort of percolating on down? Well, I, I think there's certainly an element of that. In other words, if individuals are receiving benefits or being admitted to elite programs not based on how they perform on an objective measure but instead based on the connections they have on their family background on their racial claimed racial background i mean all of that really amounts to a form of corruption and when you let corruption in the door in other words when large numbers of applicants for these programs realize that they're receiving those benefits not because of how they objectively perform, but because of who they know or, for example, what bribes they paid to, you know, sports coaches to have them classified it like with the Stanford cheating scandal and things like that. I mean, when you let those sorts of factors in the door, it really provides a tremendous incentive for people to come up with other ways of cheating. So in other words, you know, the thing is when you have an honest system, an objective honest system based on how somebody performs objectively, there's much less incentive, I think, to have additional forms of cheating than when you perceive other people as unfairly benefiting from factors like their family background or what their uh, parents can, you know, get in the door for them. So, I mean, I, I think basically it's important to return to the more objective meritocratic system that had always been the ideal that the American university system had been supporting. And, you know, in the last couple of decades, I think, has moved away from that. So, you know, again, when you see, for example, especially in the case of, you know, what I, I think prompted this particular lawsuit, when you see, for example, the trajectory of Asian enrollments at the elite Ivy League schools all converging to a fixed number over time, I mean, that looks awfully much like a racial quota. 
And when you have the universities claiming that, oh, it's just purely a coincidence that roughly 16 to 17 percent of each year's class are Asian, even when the number of Asian students in our society is rising dramatically and their academic performance is rising. I mean, then, you know, you really just have the sort of climate of dishonesty that encourages more dishonesty. And that, I think, really ended up capturing the imagination of the Supreme Court and persuading them to reverse really five decades worth of legal decisions on this sort of thing. And speaking of the effects of this on these larger issues of, of social well-being and uh, social trust and so on, not to mention the, the economy, I don't know if you're, you're probably at least passingly familiar with the work of Peter Turchin. I just read my first book by him, End Times, his new one, which gets into elite overproduction and the consequent uh, frenzied competition for a kind of fixed number of elite places which is getting smaller in proportion to the number of people who are chasing those those posts, uh, in, especially in the context of a stagnant or, or declining standard of living for the masses, seems to be associated with social collapse in society after society after society, at least according to Turchin's research, which I have no way of really judging how valid it may be, but it does sound plausible superficially. And if that's the case, then this kind of frantic competition for elite positions by way of university admissions uh, would be reflecting this larger process of the growing division between the masses and the elites, the, the, the wealth pump, Peter Turchin calls it, that's sucking the wealth up to the top uh, and putting it all in that elite class, thereby driving that competition for the limited number of elite posts. So you, you think that Turchin is onto something with this being a mechanism that can actually lead to social collapse, civil war, etc.? Well, I mean, that, that's certainly possible. In other words, I, I think obviously one of the factors driving this sort of frenzied competition has been the tremendous decline in what might be considered the traditional American middle class lifestyle. In other words, 30 or 40 years ago, there was a perception that it, that somebody, for example, who worked hard and was reasonably successful would be able to have a reasonably good lifestyle for themselves and their families. And I mean, with the decline in middle class incomes and with the decline in the sort of jobs for lower middle class or middle class people in our society and the standard of living that produced, it obviously puts much more pressure on people to desperately try to get a leg up and, um, you know, end up having to, you know, do what they can to get a university uh, degree that probably wouldn't have been as much necessary 30 or 40 years ago to get a reasonable standard of living. So, I mean, you know, there's certainly that's a factor. But I, I think, you know, if more efforts were made to simply prevent the, you know, economic decline of the American middle class, there probably wouldn't be as much pressure on people to desperately try to get into elite universities simply to have a uh, reasonably good living for themselves and their family. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Of course, Turchin is sort of counterintuitive in pointing at that elite competition as the biggest factor and then the impoverishment of ordinary people as a secondary factor, uh, claiming that the elite competition leads to a lot of disaffected people, the people who don't get in, the people who end up, you know, people with high qualifications or abilities, 
who feel that they're, you know, in a position in society that doesn't befit them. And those people end up supporting the kinds of movements that tear society apart, the, uh, the counter elites and so on. So I, I have, again, I have no idea, uh, how much truth there is to that, but I would certainly agree with you that the decline of the middle class is a, a big factor. Uh, well, h- how about your own uh, role in all of this? You were uh, favorably treated in mainstream media back when you wrote that 2012 article and thereafter, up, I think it was 2016, when that uh, New York Times story came out about the free Harvard, fair Harvard project. And now, of course, it doesn't seem that they want to give you any credit at all or even any blame. Um, what's up with that? Oh, it's an interesting story. In other words, uh, you know, I've been somebody very uh, much opposed to affirmative action, really, for decades, going back probably to the 1970s from the time I probably was a teenager. And I never really it was never clear to me whether there was much chance of reversing the tide of these racial preferences in college. For example, I was certainly, you know, very supportive of the Prop 209 campaign in California and the various other efforts. Though, from the point of view of court decisions, they really, you know, after several attempts were made to reverse the Bakke decision on the Supreme Court and nothing ever happened there, it really seemed much less likely that there would be any likelihood of the Supreme Court ruling against something like this. Uh, Then about, uh, it was by now, it's really just over 10 years ago, I ended up uh, really being very surprised when I took a look at the existing demographics of Harvard and the other elite universities to really see such a clear sign of what very obviously was a racial quota directed against Asians. And in fact, it was the sort of thing I, you know, I'd been a graduate of Harvard myself, but I mean, that had been decades earlier. And I hadn't really looked at the more recent numbers there. But when I saw, for example, the trajectory of the recent enrollment at Harvard and the other elite universities of Asian students and compared that then with the objective measure of those groups' performance, especially the PSAT national merits uh, semifinalist lists, the, the discrepancy seemed so enormous in those elite universities that I really decided it was worth writing up. And so I ended up writing a really very long detailed article analyzing the really, I, I called it the, you know, myth of American meritocracy, because, I mean, the notion of these universities had been that they really had moved away from the old bad system of favoritism, nepotism from the 1940s, 1950s, and 1960s into the modern age of meritocracy. But when you really looked at the underlying numbers, there seemed to be more strong evidence of the fact that these universities really in some ways were more corrupt and more unfair in their admissions these days than they really had been in the past. And the element of really my article that generated the most surprise, both for me and for various other people, were not so much, for example, the racial distribution of students at these elite universities, but the ethnic distribution. Because we had a situation where, for example, uh, 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 Jerome Carabell, a very high-ranking um, academic, had published about 10 years before that a book on the Ivy League, uh, basically the history of Ivy League discrimination 
against uh, Jewish students going back to the 1920s and, uh, you know, how that ended in the aftermath of the Second World War. But uh, it turns out when you really looked at the numbers, what you really saw when you checked, for example, the ethnic distribution of enrollments at these universities was something that was very different from the performance as shown by the National Merit Semifinalists lists. So, for example, what we really saw was uh, at the time I was, for example, an undergraduate at Harvard or, you know, most of those elite universities, uh, high performing Jewish students were probably about a third, even maybe more than a third, maybe 40 percent of the top performing students on measures of uh, academic merit, like, for example, national math competitions, national science competitions, other competitions like that. And they were roughly that percentage of the students at Harvard. But what really it surprised me when I then looked at the more recent numbers over the last 20 or 30 years is that there had been a very sharp decline in the academic performance of Jewish students in the United States, probably because most of these Jewish students now grew up in much more affluent families where they weren't as close to the immigrant experience and didn't feel they have to work as nearly as hard. And so they constituted a much smaller percentage of the highest performing academic students in the country than they had in past decades, while their percentage of the white students at Harvard who came from that same background had actually been much higher. So in effect, what I really discovered, which was a shock to me and really everybody else who looked at it, is that based on standard measures of academic merit, like, for example, the PSAT or exam, exams like that, you really would have expected Harvard and the other Ivy League schools to be roughly 65 to 70 percent white Gentile, 25 to 30 percent Asian, and then probably 6 to 7 percent Jewish, while the actual numbers were entirely different than that. In other words, in most of these universities, most of these elite universities, back about 10 years ago when I was doing my analysis, Jewish students actually outnumbered white Gentile students or were roughly comparable in numbers, even though as a share of their academic top performers, the difference would be probably close to a factor of 10. So in other words, the, 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 there was a tremendous overrepresentation of Jewish students at Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and the other elite universities relative to what their academic merit would seem to indicate. And that really generated a lot of surprise. In other words, it was something really nobody previously had come across. And that uh, ended up being one of the main fact, one of the main findings in my very lengthy article, along with the fact that the Asians were being really restricted to the effect of to what amounted to a racial quota. Now, you know, the Jewish issue obviously was much too controversial for most people to discuss or talk about. But the Asian issue, on the other hand, ended up getting quite a lot of attention. It generate, it persuaded the New York Times to organize a symposium on the topic in which I contributed. I wrote a lot of other articles about it, really got a lot of attention. And so about a year after that, a group of Asian organizations got together and decided to sue Harvard and a couple of other elite universities over the fact that they were being discriminated against. Because the evidence for really racial quota against Asians was quite strong. So that, that basically, that process started 
it would have been probably early 2014 or mid-2014 that the lawsuit originally began. And that obviously was eight years ago. So, you know, I, I myself wasn't really actively involved in the lawsuit. and But, you know, I certainly followed it. And I'd been really quite skeptical that the lawsuit would have any impact on the courts simply because the previous Supreme Court decisions had all gone in the other direction. But the individuals involved in the effort basically chugged along on it and, uh, you know, then finally got up to the Supreme Court. And, uh, you know, one thing I should say also is that the result, the evidence of a racial quota being directed against Asians had broader implications. As I mentioned in one of my articles at the time, the original Bakke decision, I think it was probably in 77 or 78, had uh, been a split decision on the Supreme Court arguing that racial quotas were impermissible in our society. But on the other hand, the Harvard method of selecting students, which was based on diversity but without the use of quotas, was something that could be applied to other universities around the country. So it really it opened the door to affirmative action on the basis of Harvard and a few other elite universities being able to ensure diversity of admissions without the use of quotas. And by demonstrating that Harvard and these other universities actually were implementing racial quotas targeting Asian students, in effect, that knocked the prop out of the Bakke decision. In other words, it showed that Bakke had been based really on fraud in that Harvard and these other universities have been lying about the means that they were using to select these students. And that may have helped, you know, as I argued in one of my articles at the time, that may have helped shift the ground and weaken the case of the court continuing to support the uh, past decisions on this matter. So, you know, that, that certainly probably contributed to the whole thing. But again, you know, it took eight years or nine years for it to move through the courts from federal uh, uh, Boston court in, I think it was probably about six or seven years ago, then to the appellate court, which again ruled against the plaintiffs, and now finally getting to the uh, U.S. Supreme Court, which in effect reversed 50 years worth of previous decisions and uh, probably severely curtailed the use of racial preferences or affirmative action in college admissions. It's interesting, of course, and not just interesting, it's kind of obvious why they chose to highlight the plight of Asians rather than the plight of white Gentiles. Um, I, th- I imagine a bunch of white Gentiles going to court claiming that Jews were discriminated in favor of and against the Gentiles probably wouldn't play so well in the media and the political arena. It's, a, as you say, a very sensitive topic. And I noticed that... The entire mainstream media seems to have remained silent about your connection to this issue. But today, the Jewish Daily Forward was the one exception. They posted a piece, uh, the Supreme Court just hobbled affirmative action and an anti-Semitic conspiracy theorist helped. And they uh, go into your uh, role in this. And at the end, of course, they claim that uh, numerous researchers have questioned Unz's claims about Jews in the myth of American meritocracy. In 2013, Columbia statistician Andrew Gelman reviewed Unz's research and concluded that there is, quote, no evidence that Jews are admitted preferentially compared to other whites. So they, that's the final um, paragraph 
in the Forwards article, the only article about your relationship to this Supreme Court decision today. So uh, <laughs> uh, what, what's your response to, to this claim that numerous researchers have questioned you? And then this, they quote this one guy, uh, Gelman from Columbia. Yeah, I actually, they spelled Gelman's name wrong, and they also got, they also got some of the other facts. You can't wrong. make this stuff up. Gelman never really questioned it. It's simply that he was willing to, uh, on his blog site, publish claims by other people that did raise questions there. But, I mean, the claims weren't very strong. And, in fact, he ended up then retreating afterwards, saying, you know, he emphasized the fact that he'd never looked at the data himself. He'd never really examined it. And he was simply opening the floor to some of these other individuals raising questions. But, I mean, there's really no doubt about it. It's a very simple issue. Jews in America, back when I was doing my analysis, constituted roughly 6 to 7% of the highest academic performing students among high school seniors. White Gentiles were 65 to 70%. So in other words, you would expect white Gentiles to outnumber Jews, all things being equal, roughly 10 to 1 at these elite universities, even better than 10 to 1. But instead, the numbers were roughly equal. And so we're talking about an overrepresentation of roughly 1,000% in a situation where normally overrepresentation of 20% or 30% relative to underlying factors is considered prima facie evidence of bias and discrimination. And here we're talking about a difference of a thousand percent. Now, one thing I should emphasize is there's really no evidence that the fact that these uh, Ivy League universities, most of them have presidents or provosts that are Jewish, that's probably not actually the main factor involved in this sort of massive overrepresentation. It's probably other factors. In particular, one thing that shocked me when I investigated the admissions processes of these universities and ended up doing a lot of background reading is that since these universities don't admit students based on objective academic merit, which would be something relatively easy to evaluate, but instead they rely on a sort of broader analysis of an entire application package, they have to hire a very large number of admissions officers. It turns out most of these admissions officers, their pay is not very high. They're generally poorly paid, and many of them are totally unqualified for the job they're doing. In other words, when you read through some of these stories, the typical admissions officer at an elite university might be somebody who'd previously worked as a welfare case office caseworker or been a travel agent or been an animal control officer. I mean, it's <laughs> ridiculous. We're talking about people. In fact, one of the main books written on the admissions process emphasized that the vast majority of Ivy League admissions officers are the sort of people who themselves would never have had a chance of being admitted to the Ivy League based on academic merit. So we're talking about relatively unqualified people tasked with sorting through thousands or tens of thousands of application packages and evaluating them to try to produce a class based on the pressures of diversity. And so what really ends up happening is that these individuals simply go with the pressure they're under to basically choose a class that meets certain targeted ethnic percentages. And in fact, I'd give you an example of what happened. Uh, back about 20 years ago, Princeton University 
the number of Jewish students at Princeton have been gradually declining over a 10-year period by about 10 or 15 percent. And the fact that the numbers of Jewish students admitted had declined over time because the students were simply less qualified or worked less hard caused a tremendous national scandal. It got into the New York Times, it got into the Observer, it got into the Chronicle of Higher Education, and it basically probably caused most of the admissions officers to be fired from their jobs. And so, you know, when you have tremendous pressure like that on admissions officers to admit certain groups and make sure that their numbers are never reduced and, you know, increase the numbers of other groups, it means that, you know, if you're not in one of those favored groups, there's a much greater chance that you're squeezed out. And that, I think, is probably what's responsible for the demographic factors we're talking about. I mean, just to give you one example of how shocking the current numbers are. Right now, in the United States, there are roughly probably five white Gentile high school graduates for every black high school graduate, probably more like six or seven, actually. And their academic performance is much higher. But when you're looking at the top universities like Harvard or the other Ivy League schools, the number of white Gentiles enrolled is roughly the same as the number of black students. And in fact, it's reached the point where the number of blacks are much more heavily overrepresented relative to white Gentiles in these elite universities, which simply makes no sense from any objective way of looking at it. So, you know, the whole thing about it is if we're talking about basically producing a set of elites that represent the highest meritocratic principle, obviously what we have is very different than that. But if we were simply aiming at producing an elite enrollment of these universities that, quote, looked like America, we'd be producing classes that are very different than what we have right now. In other words, you know, when you're talking about a situation where white Gentiles are probably 50 percent of the highest performing students in the United States and probably 40 percent of all the high school seniors, and they're down to like 10 or 12 or 13 percent of the students at Harvard. I mean, there's just no logical justification for that whatsoever. And those are the figures right now, as best can be determined based on the current numbers. So, you know, the whole thing about it is the issue of the sub-ethnic distribution was obviously something that was never raised in any of these court cases, simply because it was far too touchy and controversial for anybody to even discuss and that had really been the most interesting aspect of the paper that I published back then, which actually got quite a lot of attention at the time on that issue. But, you know, once the whole issue got into court, obviously, the focus was entirely in the question of racial discrimination against Asians, which admittedly had much stronger evidence, given the fact that, you know, it the numbers really almost amounted to a strict quota and that every year it was roughly 15 or 16 or 17 percent of the enrollment would come from that particular racial group, regardless of how well that group performed on academic tests or competitions or other measures of grades or things like that. So going back to the issue of admissions officers being underpaid and underqualified, feeling pressure to produce these particular distributions you did mention that media campaign about Princeton losing some of its Jewish students, uh, creating a huge uh, frenzy about possible anti-Semitism. But in general, where is that pressure coming from? In the absence of that particular media campaign, are these admissions officers 
getting it from their superiors or just from the sort of overall atmosphere? I mean, what and how do they pick out Jewish applicants over Gentile applicants? Well, I mean, I, I think probably a lot of it is media pressure more than anything else. You see, one other factor involved is that when you're talking about, for example, the senior people, both in the media and in the academic community, they're of a different generation. In other words, back 30 or 40 years ago, Jewish students in the United States were performing at a much higher level than they have been more recently. So in other words, you would expect to see much larger Jewish numbers. And uh, you also, for example, had a perception that the large, that meritocracy would cause a much larger fraction of Jews to be admitted than be denied admission. And so the the fact that, for example, it's something probably until I really published that paper 10 years ago, very few people had realized there'd been such a dramatic ethnic transformation in the percentage of highest performing students at the high school level in the United States. So that it was very different than what it would have been 30 or 40 years before. And people, people have a mental image of, you know, what their classes were like when they were students, when, you know, when they were involved in this sort of process. So, I mean, the whole thing about it is it's probably more a media pressure plus obviously you know active organizations for example Jew- jewish activist organizations would perceive any decline in the number of jewish students as being probably due to something like anti-semitism i mean the numbers are really just ridiculous for example from the time that i was an undergraduate at harvard the number of white gentile students at harvard has probably de- declined by 70 to 80% and the number of Jewish students has probably declined by no more than 10%. But nobody talks about the former rather than the latter. And, you know, to the extent that, for example, there has been any decline in white Gentile enrollment at these elite universities, it's always praised by the media as being a sign of the increasing multiculturalist or diversity provisions of the university rather than what it amounts to, which is, you know, in effect, students being denied opportunities that they really had earned. Now, you know, that isn't to say, for example, it's certainly possible that the applications coming from different groups are different in percentages than they would be. So it's certainly possible that fewer white Gentiles apply to a place like Harvard or the other Ivies that they might have relative to other groups. But, I mean, when you're talking about a decline of 70 to 80 percent, in a period of 30 or 40 years. I mean, that's a dramatically shocking decline. And the fact that the media basically either ignores or praises it, I, I think is you know, a sign of the, um, the strange nature of American society right now. So, I mean, the whole thing about it is, I mean, these results are really very simple and very straightforward. And I mean, really, never been effectively challenged by anybody. So, you know, for that reason, they've been almost entirely ignored by the media, which is preferred to focus on other things. And then especially in the last five or six years, as I started writing articles, which uh, on, you know, many of these other very controversial topics, you know, what might be called conspiracy theories or things like that. The ironic thing about the situation, which I've mentioned in a recent article, is that, you know, logically, you would expect the supporters of affirmative action 
who represent the bulk of the media and the bulk of activist groups, to have deliberately emphasized my role in this case. And in fact, if they had heavily emphasized my very controversial other writings on all of these numerous other subjects in the last five or six years and use that to attack and taint the plaintiffs of this lawsuit, they might have very well successfully discouraged the U.S. Supreme Court from even taking the case. And the fact that they totally ignored my role in the case, I think, is a sign of, you know, factors involved that really are very different than those groups hoping to preserve affirmative action. In other words, basically, if my role in the case had been emphasized over the last five or six years, I think there's a very good chance either the decision would have gone a different way or the U.S. Supreme Court would have been unwilling to even take the case. And uh, to be perfectly honest, if I'd felt that this case had any chance of getting to the Supreme Court and causing the overturning of affirmative action, I might have been much more reluctant to you know, write some of these other articles and risk you know, tainting it. But you know, as it happened, I really was very skeptical that the U.S. Supreme Court would be willing to overturn 50 years of decisions on this case. And also, I was skeptical that the media would be willing to cover this stuff for, you know, the reason that, you know, certain groups that are very reluctant to get any coverage going to these ideas would probably be willing to do whatever they could to prevent the media from covering any of these issues and my role in the case, which is exactly what happened. So, you know, it's interesting that, you know, it's only been in the last few weeks after the decision had already been made by the U.S. Supreme Court that any of these different outlets, like, for example, the Harvard Crimson or the British Guardian or now the uh, Jewish Forward, had been willing to raise some of these extremely explosive aspects of the case that might have successfully prevented the U.S. Supreme Court from overturning affirmative action, which is a point I've been making some of these people. Right. It's it's kind of humorous, the lurid way that the forward quotes the ADL uh, saying that you've denied the Holocaust, endorsed the claim that Jews consume the blood of non-Jews, and he's claimed that Jews control the media, hate non-Jews, and worship Satan. <laughs> I mean, you, you could put that on an ad and probably you get a lot oh, of... exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, in other words, uh, the whole thing is I, I started writing some of these ultra-controversial articles about five or six years ago. And, you know, for any of these groups that were desperately trying to derail this, this lawsuit and defend affirmative action, it would have been the easiest thing in the world for them to put me front and center in the case and use it to severely smear and taint the plaintiffs. And it simply shows that, you know, I think probably the ADL was unwilling to take the risk of getting broader discussion of some of these ultra-controversial topics, even if that would have successfully prevented the overturning of 50 years of affirmative action policy in the United States. And, you know, it's interesting because, for example, even a few weeks ago when the British Guardian came out with a headline, which uh, I I think it said something like, uh, uh, anti-affirmative action case based on the work of a Holocaust denier. I mean, that's about as explosive and controversial a headline as anybody can possibly find 
it was totally ignored by the media, uh, ex- with the one exception of the uh, Harvard Crimson. In fact, the Harvard Crimson inf- interviewed me on the point. And, you know, I basically gave them a lot of the material background and also told them that, you know, it seems to me the biggest story that these people could investi- be investigating right now is why nobody in the media was willing to cover this ultra-explosive aspect of the case that could have successfully prevented the overturning of affirmative action by the U.S. Supreme Court if it had been done over the last five or six years. I mean, in other words, it would be the easiest thing for any of these journalists to go to editors or reporters at these major media outlets and ask them why they had covered up such explosive aspects of the case that could have basically successfully defended affirmative action in the United States. So, you know, I mean, it's the sort of thing I'd half expected exactly this sort of thing to happen because of a few previous cases where the media had been extraordinarily careful to cover controversial issues in a way that avoided discussing our website or any of my writings on the subject, even when, for example, just to give an example, one of the bloggers on our website is Steve Saylor. And back a few years ago, when uh, I think it was in 2000, in uh, 2020, when Donald Trump was running for re-election, probably the most hated member of the Donald Trump administration was Stephen Miller, one of his aides. And uh, it was discovered that Stephen Miller had basically, in private messages, had endorsed and passed around some of Steve Saylor's columns on racially charged matters. And there was a whole controversy. For example, the uh, Southern uh, Poverty Law Center published a 5,000-word attack on Stephen Miller focused on the fact that he'd promoted the work of Steve Saylor and tried to basically force Donald Trump to fire him over something like that. And, you know, it came close. I mean, there was a tremendous media storm of controversy on Stephen Miller and his association with Steve Saylor. But they never mentioned that the Steve Saylor columns had originally been published on our website. On the same home page that promotes Holocaust denial, 9-11 conspiracy theories, JFK conspiracy theories, all these extraordinarily explosive subjects that could have been used to smear Stephen Miller and probably force his resignation. But they covered it up. They never mentioned a word about our website because I think personally they were probably too concerned about any giving any media oxygen to the website that they, you know, would give Steve Miller basically a buy on the issue over something like that. So, you know, it's simply it really is just very interesting how the media has made such tremendous efforts to avoid focusing on what it might reasonably regard as the tainted roots of the case that successfully overturned 50 years of affirmative action decisions in the United States and the U.S. Supreme Court. And uh, it really will be interesting if some enterprising journalist at some point decides to go to these mainstream media publications and ask why they spent five years working so incredibly hard to cover up facts that might have protected and safeguarded affirmative action in the United States. So when you explained this to the Harvard Crimson journalists, what was their reaction? Well, I mean, they 
they were curious about the same thing. In other words, it's the sort of thing. It's really an amazingly big story. I mean, we're talking about something. We're talking about an explosion that could have probably severely that, that could have persuaded the U.S. Supreme Court to avoid taking this case. And they had five years to explore it. I mean, the articles in question, my articles or the other articles on our website, I mean, they've been viewed millions of times. I mean, they're some of the highest profile articles on the website. They've been sitting on the homepage all of this time. Is it likely that the U.S. Supreme Court would have taken a case intended to overturn and eliminate affirmative action in American college, elite college admissions, if the media had portrayed that case as largely based on the work of a Holocaust denier. I think that would have been extremely difficult for the U.S. Supreme Court or any of the court clerks around them to have been willing to accept. And so, again, the whole media, the media basically sacrificed the mainstream media in the United States and all of these organizations purportedly regard safeguarding affirmative action as one of the highest values they could possibly strive for. And they sacrificed it, apparently, because there was probably another factor that they consider or other groups that are very influential consider even more important. And I mean, it would be the easiest thing in the world for any investigative journalist to simply contact these reporters and ask them why they covered up that aspect of the case. I mean, now that the case is over and done with, I mean, I don't have any mind. I, I certainly don't mind it getting out there. And I mean, the opponents of affirmative action wouldn't either because basically it's over. The decision is taken six to three. And at this point, I mean, why have they covered up for five years? It even it's more than that. Many of the journalists who cover affirmative action, who write the articles for The New York Times and these other publications, they're on my distribution list. They have personally received all these articles on Holocaust denial, 9-11 conspiracy theories, JFK conspiracy theories. Every shocking, dramatic thing that anybody could mention. They get these emails from me and they know perfectly well. I mean, they've mentioned that I'm basically the person who launched the U.S. Supreme, who launched the case, basically overturned affirmative action in the United States with, you know, basically showing that there was a racial quota. In other words, you know, I, I wrote the piece in the New York Times that basically caught the eye of all these Asian groups and got them to basically launch their lawsuit a year later. And so, I mean, the facts are all out there. Everybody knows it, but nobody will talk about it because it's considered simply too hot to discuss. And, you know, it seems to me that if, if I were a supporter of affirmative action, I would be pretty outraged over the fact that the entire mainstream media in the United States was willing to sacrifice 50 years of affirmative action policy simply to keep these other matters out of the public eye. It tends to reinforce <laughs> your point that the media are systematically dishonest, uh, far beyond what most people imagine. I certainly agree with that. And uh, again, it, it's not only a matter of dishonesty. In other words, it's not that they ever denied that I was involved. It's simply that they kept silent. In other words, it, it's a lot easier for a person to be reluctant to mention something controversial that could get them into trouble 
than to be dishonest about it. So, you know, again, silence is the sort of thing that um, I, I think a lot of people in the media are used to doing on a regular basis. But I mean, the fact that they basically were willing to sacrifice affirmative action in the United States instead of speaking out about the roots of the case. And, and you know, the whole thing about it is, you know, I really do honestly believe that, I mean, the case wouldn't have been launched without my article. But even if that, even if that's mistaken, even if that's an exaggeration, all of us know how the media typically exaggerates things in order to smear the opponents in a case they feel strongly. Yeah. This would have been easy and to exaggerate your role. It would have been the <laughs> easiest thing in the yeah. world yeah. for them to have portrayed it that way, and the result would have been probably to safeguard 50 years of affirmative action in America. Well, well, well let, let's hope some affirmative action supporter in the media gets wind of this and gets outraged and calls you up. Um, because I shouldn't be the only person talking to you. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Ron. It's always great talking with you. Keep up the fantastic work. God bless. Hey, thanks a lot. That's Ron Unz of the Unz Review at unz.com. I'm Kevin Barrett of kevinbarrett.substack.com. Back in the next hour with more controversial talk radio. Stick around. You're listening to Revolution Radio. Freedom slips.